heavily caffeinated. Yes, that's very accurate yeah. information. Yeah. We have a modified... Um, Although apparently people don't like it when we talk too much about why we are the way we are. Well, no. One person said it one time. <laughs> Your face right now. <laughs> you just like... You look like a meme. Just like <laughs> your head tilted back with your hand up. Like, you didn't even know what you wanted to say. Describe my face. We don't need to excuse why we're silly. That's what I'm saying Whether with my meme coffee face. coffee or Prosecco. That's right. If you can't handle it, get off the bus. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to ruse your lips, shake your shoulders, shake your hips. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Well, uh, hi, Deanna. Oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Is this thing on? Yes. Yes, it is. It's on. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's what that light means. Yeah. Awesome. I'm Hannah. That's Deanna. What's up? We are your hosts this evening slash morning. We'll be your tour guides. Through history. Through lady times. Oh. We, d- we are driving this bus. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't either. But, oh my God, uh, my nose is running. But you're here listening to a podcast <laughs> about women. It's called Good Witches, Bad Bitches. We talk about women throughout history. And, and even we're some... pretty irreverent. Yeah. And we talk about what they've done, what they do. Are doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fucking cool. We're not scholars. It's pretty rad. Nope. We're just uh, ladies who like to talk about ladies. Yeah. We're we just should. irreverent, silly scholars who sing and laugh and curse like sailors and talk about women who make us mad, who make us excited, who get us fired up, who get us depressed, who get us motivated, who make us feel lots of emotions. And that's why we talk about them. And you're clearly here to do the same, except listen as opposed to talk. Although sometimes I listen to podcasts, I talk out loud to them like I'm there. So hopefully other people do the same so I don't sound like a crazy. I think that about covers it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my Lanta. Okay. Shall we? um, Shall we dance? Shall we get into this? Great. That sounds awesome. All right. I think you had something you wanted I, to I do. read I ha- to me. I have a thing that I want to read to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is something I wanted to talk about uh, when it happened, which was in September. But then I thought maybe I wanted to talk about it's an It's an article about a woman, like a brief article about a woman. And then I thought I wanted to talk about her on the podcast. So I kind of saved it. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to wait since she was in the headlines at the time. And then... And then I did it, and then I realized that I just wanted to talk about her in a short capacity. All right. So cool. Because we do a lot of World War II era stuff. Yeah. Or we have in the past. That's true. Um, so I want to read a little article about Freddie Overstegen, who was a teenage resistance fighter who assassinated Nazis as a teenager. Fuck yes. And she died uh, in September at the age of 92. Oh, wow. Yeah. 92. Shit. Look how cute. Oh, little Nazi killer. (laughs) Little Nazi killer. Um, So here we go. This is uh, from Smithsonian.com. 
After Nazi forces invaded the Netherlands in 1940, Holland, uh, recalling, she's yes. Dutch. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Fourteen-year-old, <laughs> fourteen-year-old, uh, whoa, fourteen-year-old, Freddie Overstegen handed out pamphlets and posters condemning German aggression. Not long after, she was recruited into the Dutch resistance, where she became part of an unassuming trio of young women who risked their lives sabotaging railways, assisting Jewish victims of Nazi persecution, and using their charms to ensnare Nazi collaborators. Oh my God, someone make a movie about them, please. I think that that would be fucking rad. Uh, As Harrison Smith of the Washington Post reports, Freddie died on September 5th this year, one day before she turned 93. Wow. She wasn't as well known as the two other female fighters who collaborated with her in the resistance. Her sister, Truus, it's T-R-U-U-S, I don't know how to say Dutch things, hmm. over Stegen, and a young woman named Hanny Shaft. But in the last years of her life, she was honored for her remarkable wartime courage. Freddie was born in 1925 in a village that's now part of the Dutch city of Harlem. She grew up in a socially aware household. Her mother was a communist with a fierce intolerance for justice. And before the war broke out, she hid Jewish refugees from Amsterdam and uh, from Amsterdam and Germany in the family home. After the Nazis advanced into the Netherlands, Freddie witnessed the horrors of Hitlerism firsthand. Um, I remember how people were taken from their homes, she recalled, uh, in 2016. Germans were banging on doors with butts of their rifles that made so much noise you'd hear it in the entire neighborhood, and they would always yell. It was very frightening. Sounds like ice. Um, Freddie and Truce joined their mother in disseminating anti-Nazi leaflets and pasting warnings over posters calling for men to work in Germany. Don't go to Germany, their messages read. Uh, For every Mm -hmm. Dutch man working in Germany, a German man will go to the front. which is an interesting thing like if you go they want they want dutch people to go to germany to be a workforce so they can have soldiers yep Ugh. um when freddie was 14 and truce was 16 a commander of the harlem council of resistance knocked on their door and asked their mother if the girls could join in the underground fight against nazis she agreed (laughs) 14 years old fuck i will do this thing uh i thought we would be starting a kind of secret army Oh, Dumbledore's army. Freddie told Spanier. I love that at 14, she was like, I thought we would be starting an underground army. So I was into that. (laughs) The man that came to our door said we'd be getting military training and they did teach us a thing or two. Someone taught us to shoot and we learned to march in the woods. There was about seven of us then. Hanny wasn't a part of the group yet and we were the only girls. Freddie, according to Yonker, was the first to shoot a Nazi traitor. Girls would entrap their targets by flirting with them in bars and asking them to take a walk in the forest. Oh, shit. Once they reached a secluded spot, the men were shot. Oh, my God. That's insane. By no means did the young women relish these dangerous and harrowing assignments. It was tragic and very difficult, and we always cried about it afterwards. Truce, who died at 92 in 2016, said... We didn't feel it suited us. It never suits anybody unless you're real criminals. One loses everything. It poisons the beautiful things in life. Freddie, Truce, and Hanny were given other risky tasks. They helped transport Jews to hiding spots, blew up railroads, and planted a communist flag at the headquarters of the National Socialist Movement. Freddie and Truce survived the war. Hanny did not. She'd been cited during an attempted assassination and became a wanted target of the Nazis who knew her only as the girl with the red hair. Oh. In March 1945, Hanny was caught by German soldiers while transporting underground papers and a pistol on her bicycle. She was interrogated, tortured, and executed. Oh. In 2014, Prime Minister Mark Rutte awarded Freddie and Truce the Mobilization War Cross, a Dutch military honor for their acts of resistance during the war. Truce uh, often spoke publicly about the girls' experience as fighters, 
But Freddie lived a more quiet life. She got married and raised three children, which helped her cope with her traumas of the past. The haunting memories, however, never quite left her. She revealed to Spaniard that every year on May 4th, Remembrance Day in the Netherlands, she woke up feeling a little bit of dread. But that's 14 years old. I can't even imagine. Flirting with soldiers in bars. Like, also, 14-year-olds in bars, because they could. Yes. (laughs) Going and flirting with Nazis. Being like, let's go somewhere more private. And then fucking executing them it is amazing that like we like all our world war ii movies are always about like the heroic male soldiers who went in and you know did whatever is, uh, stories we're telling yes absolutely but they're not the only stories from that era mm-hmm. and from and and i feel like we a, a lot of us have world war ii fatigue because we we it's a topic that's covered so much in yeah. like media narrative media but that's there's there's so many more people whose stories are fascinating and important that we haven't covered that I feel like could rejuvenate yeah, somebody that. Somebody make a movie about those women. Somebody make a movie about those women. I mean, one of them was caught. The girl with the red hair. She was caught and she was executed. Another one was caught trying to smuggle pamphlets and guns. Gun? Gun. One gun. gun. One gun. Single gun. Single gun. But like on bicycles, like, and you were just like a little teenage girl and you're like, hi, can I go past on my bike? Like, I'm not. And most of the time it worked. And then obviously the Nazis started to get hip to that and be like, wait a second. That's so crazy. Wait a second. Girls can have thoughts and opinions and do shit too. Imagine. Yeah. God, that's freaking awesome. 14. I have a cousin who's 14. I have a cousin who's 14. (laughs) I can't. She. What? That's how. That's the age. That's yep. the age. Yep. Holy fuck. Well, and imagine where you were at 14. Like what what you were doing, what you th- were thought a about. Lot of stupid shit. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we were dumb. We were dumb and like, yep, not not um just silly teenagers in suburbia. Yeah, we didn't need to be. We didn't need to be thinking about anything like that. And right. When you are 14 and you have to think about stuff like that, what do you do? You well, it also reminds a- me, too, of, like, all the the teenagers who are the March for Our Lives teens who are, they were forced into doing something. Yes. Because they were put in horrific situations and were yep. like, enough already. Yep. And they're still saying it. Thank God. I just saw one of the, the teens from... Um, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas got into Harvard. Oh, and I was like, "No, you blessed child! <laughs> oh, you like, of course you child. got into Harvard. You helped start a whole movement. Yeah, I feel like, <laughs> like if they would you be didn't, stupid to not accept you. But I think they would have egg on their face. But of course, you know, as a seventeen, eighteen year old, you're probably still really nervous and rife with insecurity about like, well, what if I'm not smart enough, not good enough? Not yeah. Anyway, congratulations to her <laughs> <laughs> getting into Harvard. Yes, yes, congrats. Uh, but that was Freddie Overstegen, man. Amazing. Thanks, dude. Raise a glass to Freddie. What's up, witches? We have some really exciting news. We have just launched our Patreon. Yay! Woohoo! Something we've been trying to do for a while. Yes. And we've finally gotten there. Yes. And if you are not familiar with Patreon, it is basically a platform that helps 
content creators like us. like us make a little bit of money to help with costs associated with creating that content. Right. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast, mm-hmm. um, and we'll have the link in our show notes. Yes. At the moment, we have a very basic tiered system. You get to be a patron of this show, and you can opt in to whether or not you want to be a good witch patron or a bad bitch patron. It's the same if you do a minimum donation of $3 or more per month, and uh, the first 10 people of each will get a free pin corresponding, corresponding to whichever option you chose hell yeah and you'll get a shout out on the podcast as a good witch or a bad bitch whichever one you choose to be which is pretty fucking rad yeah we're pretty excited about that and we really appreciate all of the support that you guys have given us thus far and that you'll continue to give us hopefully fingers crossed and we look forward to seeing you in our patriosphere hell yeah matriosphere on patreon (laughs) (laughs) yeah Let's go with it. Cool. Cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. We love you. Well, you want to hear about a lady? I guess. <laughs> Just <laughs> kidding. Have to. I'm super excited. <laughs> we can go do other stuff. No, we can't. I want to hear about your fucking lady. All right. Okay. So um, last week, I went to see a movie with a friend. Which movie? It is called The Bigamist. Have you ever heard of this? It's from 1953. No. And they they were playing it at the Alamo as part of a an Ida Lupino tribute week. And so they were playing a, a number of her films. I love Alamo Drafthouse. I love Alamo Drafthouse. And it was, it inspired me to, like seeing this movie inspired me to look more into who Ida Lupino was. And um, I decided to do her this week. Oh, right. Yeah. Let's talk about a filmmaker. So I thought I would start. Actually, I should probably mention some of my sources. Um, probably. Cinemascope.com was one. LA Times was another. Um, medium. Independent. Uh, sci-fi.com. Because sci-fi does a lot of articles about women and like women filmmakers and writers and stuff. It's really cool. That's pretty neat. Um yeah, in fact, if you are interested in, like, learning about, you know, contemporary female filmmakers and actresses and writers, sci-fi covers a lot of people um, and their movies and, and content and stuff. Um, just a little plug there. But I decided to start with this little quote um, out of the New York Times that they got in 1995 from Martin Scorsese. And he said... Ida Lupino was a woman of extraordinary talents, and one of those talents was directing. Her tough, glowingly emotional work as an actress is well-remembered, but her considerable accomplishments as a filmmaker are largely forgotten, and they shouldn't be. The five films she directed between 1949 and 1953 are remarkable chamber pieces that deal with challenging subjects in a clear, almost documentary fashion, and they represent a singular achievement in American cinema. Ooh. And so when I said Ida Lupino, you thought of her as a filmmaker, but I think most people think of her as an actress. I don't know her. She's just, she's somebody who was an actress. She started out as an actress, but um, but her journey through filmmaking over time is really fascinating. So I'll get into what some of her movies are because I think that's that's a part of, you know, who she is as a 
as a person is like talking about some of these films in sequence but okay she was born um in london on february 4th during a german zeppelin bombing oh my god (laughs) her poor mother can you imagine being in labor while that's happening no you have multiple crises yes going on (laughs) it's terrible i mean it makes for good you know uh, stories also, two, later on two british born women in a row mm-hmm. yep so she was born to a prominent british theater family and what mm-hmm. okay and she debuted in the love race with her dad at 13 years old before breaking out with her first affair in 1932 and that was the that was the movie that kind of launched her more into the public eye as an actor as an actor in england um she had Apparently just accompanied her mother to the casting, but the director saw her and was like, you need to audition for this. And she did. And she was perfect. And the the press immediately dubbed her the English uh, Jean Harlow. Ridiculous. Sorry. I... <laughs> that was just angry enough. I wasn't entirely sure how to respond. <laughs> It was very aggressive in your general direction. Yeah. So pretty quickly, she became unsatisfied with the movies that she found herself being cast in. They were, you know, she was just not getting roles that she was interested in. They weren't challenging for her. And I think that's a common problem of actresses of that era. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally, she demanded an audition with William A. Wellman, who was casting a film that she thought would be more challenging for her as an actress called The Light That Failed. Hmm. And her performance was emotional and it was stunning. And she was pretty much just given the part right then and there. Um, and though it wasn't necessarily that director's best known film it brought her enough accolades that she won a warner brothers contract Ooh, which as we know at the time actors signed contracts with studios instead of per picture per, per project yeah um and so she got this contract with warner bros and that basically led to more parts that I think she preferred as part of her brand as like the tough gal and like, Mm. you know, she was always playing the woman from the wrong side of the tracks and like really like bantery kind of person. Yeah. So that was that became what she was really known for doing. Um, And she was most notably. um, uh, Where did I? I just lost my spot. Oh, she was most known for her collaborations with Humphrey Bogart in High Sierra in 1941. Oh, God. I'm really ashamed that I didn't know I didn't name. really either, to be perfectly honest. Um, she was in, she played that, you know, hard-boiled character in They Drive by Night. Um, and she showed off her musical chops as a conflicted chanteuse in The Man I Love in 1946. Oh. Uh. Yeah. But she soon... Um, they soon started encouraging her to revamp her brand a little bit. Like, they weren't as interested in her as a tough girl. They wanted her to be the, you know, English Jean Harlow. They wanted her to be taking on parts that were a little bit Who's more. They, Warner Brothers? Warners. Yeah. They wanted her to take on parts that were a little bit more, like, leading lady. Hmm. And. Um, the more classically. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so working with Warners really stopped 
being great for her too because she wasn't getting parts she liked she didn't feel challenged She's by them back in that back in that yeah. um and soon she just started turning down projects altogether which which you kind of aren't allowed to do when you aren't allowed to do with the studio yeah so that results in what they call a suspension oh. where you you are not allowed to work on anything you basically for as long as that project that they wanted you to be in is filming you can't go out and find other work so you can't go act in anything else. Contractually, you, I guess that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. But if we can't have you, no one can. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I really liked this quote from her um, where during her tumultuous stint at Warner Brothers in the 40s, she was playing second fiddle to Betty Davis and who, who didn't play second fiddle to Betty Davis? Well, exactly. I want to know. Exactly. <laughs> So she started, you know, she started turning down these roles and um, amused herself, the L.A. Times said, through reinvention. She started her Hollywood career by playing tough girls, obviously. And she said, now uh, they think of me whenever any real sweet heroine is needed. She doesn't sound like she wants to play tough girls. Why are they trying to pigeonhole her into playing sweet girls? Because that's want to what do they that. wanted. Because she looked a particular way? Yeah. So she said, they advised me to come up out of the muck and be, be uh, my own simple self. So I did. But huh. if in a year or so I go back to being a witch, people will be surprised and delighted and my employers will proudly announce the arrival of a new Lupino. Oh. So she was, you know, she understood branding and she understood also the power of a, a reinvention which is fascinating for that era i feel because that's yeah. way more important like branding is not a thing that came into into play with like managers and things until yeah. recently for people yeah like at, or at least on brand for you yeah or, i mean we didn't call it that but i mean but it was that it was that oh, and she shit, recognized sorry. it She's and and she thought that like if she could if she could create another reinvention for her image and herself that like then people would be or at least Warner Brothers probably would be fine with you know all the times that she had been pickier about what she was taking on and okay blah 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 right anyway i just like that that quote from her i do too um <clears throat> something called a radio work freelance clause which I don't know what that is. I didn't look it up. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it kept her afloat through her um, subsequent professional and private setbacks, some of those being the suspensions. It, presumably it means that she could do radio work outside of Warner Brothers while they, she was... Excuse me. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Which was pretty well paying back then. Yeah, I think it, I think it helped her a lot. It's still p- well paying today, but... <laughs> But they did like radio plays and things like that. Yeah. Back in that time. Yeah. I have to assume that you're right, that that's what that refers to. Thank you for your confidence. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I know they still do radio plays in the UK. We don't really do them here, but. No. Anyway. But this was here too. Right. Um, That's what I mean. But yeah, so she, so this was, she was able to use that to get her through the suspensions. And then also she was at this time married to um, another actor, Lewis Hayward. Okay. Alongside whom Ida played her favorite role, apparently, in Ladies in Retirement. 
1941 okay which i want to go look up um but the marriage dissolved it was you know it was just a bad marriage and she kept getting assigned betty davis's leftovers and so she kept turning them down oh my god um and so in her downtime read suspensions um she learned to compose music oh just learned uh-huh great but she was also a musical person so i right. think it was probably so easy. am i but i couldn't be a composer <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe if I put my mind to it. I don't know. But she also used this time to learn filmmaking. Nice. So she'd wander around the lot while she was suspended and watch all the other productions happening. Yeah. And she would go up and talk to the directors and be like, what are you doing? What? How do you do this? Like, what would you do here? What would you do there? And they just thought she was this cute little lady wandering around the lot and just like wide eyed asking questions. Which she was, but, oh you know. God, how, what, how do you work a camera? She was, yeah. <laughs> she, she found that it was actually really fascinating for and her. informative, yeah. And one director even let her into the cutting room. So she saw how, nice. you know, how the movies were cut together. Which, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, before um, digital editing. Oh, they would literally <laughs> films, cut negatives. Yeah, with scissors. And tape them together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's how a lot of your favorite movies From are made. The golden era of Hollywood. Yes. Um, so yeah. Which so insane to think about <laughs> the amount of hours that sh- that's tedious. I know. Can you imagine cu- cutting no. out a sliver of a frame with scissors or an X-Acto knife or whatever Sometimes it was Sometimes one you frame used? at a time. Like, oh, this one's good. And then, damn it. That's crazy. Um, so when Jack Warner offered her another exclusive four-year contract in 1947 why she, would he do that she was suspended oh, sorry i don't know i mean i think that they still had hope that she would t- like take over once betty davis you know became i don't know decided she didn't want to be a star anymore betty davis would never decide she wanted to be a star anymore i have a lot of feelings about betty davis apparently that I'm just going to insert into this. Well, and so did Ida. Uh, (laughs) I'm channeling Ida. She said no. She said, I don't want to be told someday that I will be replaced by some starlet as I was told I would replace Betty. Oh, gross. Yeah. So she said no. Who? Gross. And by by 1948, she had become a U.S. citizen. And um, she had married... Uh, a second time and she so this marriage was to Collier Young who was a writer and soon would become a producer alongside her Mm -hmm. Um, and in 1949 she and Young founded the production company The Filmmakers that's cool and ridiculous yeah I feel like a lot of women didn't found production companies back then no no it really because I mean back in the burgeoning years of Hollywood, women did sometimes because there were a lot more women in Hollywood in the in the silent film era. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, the highest paid um, screenwriter, and I want to do her at some point, but the highest paid screenwriter in, I think, like 1925-ish maybe was Frances Marion. And she was best buds with um, Mary, the one who helped... Uh, found united artists mary pickford um so she and mary pickford were like besties and she would write films for mary Mary pickford and they were like huge money makers and mary pickford was a director and she why did it stop why did it shift 
because men figured out that it was like making money and it was popular and they got into it and and there was this big movement at the time for women to like you know go home i mean once the 20s That's were true. over the 20s were kind of like this this uh huge sort of feminist era with the flappers and yep. Things like that. And then the Great Depression happened and then the war happened and that was like another upswing. Anyway. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. I'm putting it in context and we're on the same page now. Well, and if you think about in the in the late 1940s, men had come back from the war. The war was over. And so they were kind of resuming key roles in in industry in all the yeah. industries that women had taken over. And so there mm-hmm. weren't a ton of women in Hollywood because they'd they'd all been encouraged to go back to work. I mean, film noir in a big way was a commentary on women who had gained independence while men were gone and were now being villainized through the the role of the femme fatale. Oh, yeah. And then there there was always the femme fatale and then there was always the the innocent love interest who ultimately the the man who has been fucked over by the femme fatale goes to and realizes like oh i didn't want this independent seductress i want you this woman who is young and virginal and needs me and you're going to be at home making dinner and that's what film noir really is about it's in a big way yeah um yeah anyway that was big uh, tangent tangent but i loved it <laughs> thank you it's relevant it's very relevant um because there's some stuff later on in this story that come comes into that a little bit so she founded this production company with her husband at the time with her husband at the time and it was uh, it was mainly so he could write and she could produce but also act and it gave her the freedom to have Do her own shit. Yeah, have the parts that she wanted. She said, this gave me the freedom to call my own shots, which was very, like, unheard of at the time. Right. She only started directing when the director that her company hired to, to direct their very first film, which was called Not Wanted. Um, and it was a film about unwanted pregnancy, which is like, whoa. Mind-blowing. Oh, my God. Yeah. She wanted to make socially aware films and films about women (sighs) and the things that they dealt with. She wanted to do that. And that was part of their mission statement, Um, which is kind of where some of that documentary style that Martin Scorsese talked about comes from. Yeah. Like, she was really inspired by that realistic treatment of that content. But... This director they hired to direct the movie got ill three days into the film. And they're a small, young production company. Like, they had no choice. She took over directing. And nice. Fate stepped in. Fate stepped in. And she was uncredited at the time because he, you know, he was on the shoot for three days before getting ill. And then she directed the entire thing after that, but she didn't get credited for it whatever we still run into that kind of <sighs> shit today i know but so she got the bug you know she was like oh shit this is actually really fucking cool i love this and so from 1949 to 1966 she nurtured a successful dual career as an a-list actress because she continued acting and a pioneering filmmaker dedicated to the production of films that investigated the social condition of women in contemporary society that's so cool it was so cool um 
this I think is super interesting. She referred to herself as mother on set. And she had a director's chair with mother of us all embroidered on the back. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> she, because she commenced her career at a time when, you know, Hollywood wasn't used to having women in positions of power on set. And so she had to deal with the men who she was telling what to do in a very specific way. So she's like, just think of it as I'm your mom. <laughs> exactly. You listen to your mom, right? Great. Well, I'm your mom now. Exactly. Look at me. Look at me. I am the mother now. She said. <laughs> oh, no, I'm the mother now. <laughs> Can that be the title of this episode? Look at me, I'm the mother. I'm the mother now. Look at me, I'm, I'm the your mother, mother. Now. Um, Are you my mama? Yes. So. <laughs> sorry. So. So she said, I'm not the kind of woman who can bark orders. And then she also said, you do not tell a man. You suggest to him. Darlings, mother has a problem. I'd love to do this. Can you do it? It sounds kooky, but I want to do it. Now, can you do it for me? And they do it. They just do it. That is an amazing quote. It's so fascinating. Fuck. I love her. I know. <laughs> What's crazy is like modern feminists say, oh, she's not feminist at all. Oh, fuck off. Because she, you know, played into that game. And also a lot of her movies still have like traditional messages at their core. But it was the fucking 50s. What do you expect? She was still making movies about it, it, women. It's like when you look at people through a modern lens and don't look at, it, at them through the lens of their time. Yes. She was radical for her time. She Are was you fucking, fucking kidding radical. me? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, her films pushed boundaries in a way that had her constantly at odds with the production code administration, mm. which m listeners may or may not know was what enforced the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. Which was the Which set talked about. Yeah, it was the set of of industry moral guidelines that Hollywood implemented in the 30s um, to basically say, like, this is what you can and cannot show or do, which is why so many black and white films of, of that era have like, you know, if if a man and woman kiss on screen and it looks like they're about to have sex, like it cuts away and it'll come back to them fully dressed in bed smoking and the smoking kind of implies that sex happened, that sex happened, but you aren't allowed to imply it any more than that. And that's also why men and women sleep in different beds. Yeah. Like or husbands and yeah, wives. Lucy and Ricky, they had separate twin beds. And mm -hmm. it's like that's nobody in America did that. No, but it, but that was what you had to do. Because it's like, oh, no, they share a bed. Yep. That's not even implication that they fuck. I mean, kind of. But you can fuck in a twin bed and then go to sleep in your separate beds. I know. Come on. But that was all part <laughs> of Hayes Code. I mean, I would if that's all my options were. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting tidbit. The Hayes Code pretty much died with um, Bonnie and Clyde when Bonnie and Clyde came out in 1967, I think. And it was very... It was just a very radical movie, and the fact that it came out, even though the Hayes Code was technically in place, was, uh, you know, a sign that, that Hollywood was times were changing. Yeah, and it was like didn't give a shit about. Yes. Yeah. 
no more censorship of of that stuff. Um, but anyway, Ida is basically credited with creating product placement because studios would not invest in her movies because of her radical content and ideas. And so she had... She really? Had, yeah. So she had a hard time getting money, and the way she could do it was by saying, hey, you, Coca-Cola, I'll put... I'll put some Coke in here. feature your can. Yep. If you give me money. Yep. So that was how she got money for her films because studios didn't want to touch it. They didn't want to touch any of her shit. Wow. Um, yeah. It is also worth mentioning that Howard Hughes was a good friend of hers. And he helped fund a few of her films, three of them. But ultimately, they didn't make money. So the production company, but they were they were never box office hits, and so they the, they ended up costing the filmmakers, the production company, money. So she did those three films, and then she was out. But Howard Hughes was a an admirer of her work, um, and he's what he's the guy that the Aviator, the movie The Aviator, is mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so she is credited with several firsts for women in film. Um, her film Never Fear was a drama about a dancer whose life is changed when she is struck down with polio, which she had at one time. And that was why this movie was so important to her. But like people were really like, oh, God, you don't do that. You don't talk about polio in Hashtag movies. Hashtag vaccinate your children. Hashtag vaccinate your children. <laughs> um, but out- yeah. I mean, that's crazy, right? So that was one. Outrage was one of the first films made in Hollywood um, during the height of the Hayes Code that directly dealt with rape. What? So its main character, it's about this the main character who you don't see her getting raped. Of course not. Obviously. Hayes but code. you see her being followed by the man who intends to rape her and you see the aftermath of that. And the story is about her struggling with that and the movie's event. called outrage and the movie's called outrage Fuck, i want to see it um yeah and then with the bigamist which is the one i saw uh-huh. she became the first woman to direct herself in a major motion picture oh and she's in it and she's really wonderful and i can see exactly why people say you know she was the tough gal yeah she was that woman because she just so perfectly embodies that but she deals with an un, uh, a pregnancy out of wedlock in that Whoa. movie, which is super fascinating. Um, and that was 1953, I think. So that was Whoa. that was pretty early. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was the only woman who directed episodes of The Twilight Zone, the early one. And what really? Yep. And she also starred in episodes of The Twilight Zone. No fucking kidding. Yep. Crazy, right? Yeah, that's awesome. And Alex is totally going to know who this woman is. Oh, yeah. He's going to be into this. <laughs> and lastly, maybe not lastly, I don't know. But lastly in this list of firsts, she was the, the, the consensus is that she is the only woman to have directed a film noir. Oh. And it was in 1953, and it was called The Hitchhiker. I feel like, oh, my God, I just hit my mic so hard. Um... I feel like I've heard of that. You may have, yeah. Um, 
uh, Lupino was considered a director of social issues and films typically aimed at women, but The Hitchhiker was an all-male cast. and But with a female director. But with a female director. Yeah. And its foundation. I feel like it's like Catherine Bigelow in The Hurt Locker. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because her, like, later on, she becomes known for, like, distinct male genres as well. But I'll get into that. Okay. Um, I thought this was interesting. The inspiration for the film was Billy Cook, an American spree killer who murdered six people on a 22-day rampage between Missouri and California while posing as a hitchhiker. What the fuck? Lupino interviewed the two prospectors Cook held hostage, um, the killer held hostage, and got releases from both of them as well as the murderer so as to incorporate actual events from Cook's life into the script. What the fuck? I want to see this movie. I know. So all that to say, like, she was clearly invested into, like, diving into the real shit. Yeah. You know, she loved, she just, she liked. She was not making escapist films. No. (laughs) No. And she wasn't afraid to go talk to a fucking spree killer. Serial killer, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's so, it's so crazy. Um. Let's see here. Yeah, I would just like to point out that your hand is like on your head in a. <laughs> um, so, OK, here we go. After four years, unfortunately, this was short lived, but the filmmakers, the production, her production company died out. And Presumably because they weren't making enough money. Yeah, I think yeah. they just weren't making enough money. And I. I th- nobody would would produce and she would have to beg corporations for money. Yeah. I didn't get a ton of solidity on this, but I think her marriage with Collier Young may have also been fizzled. on the rocks and yeah. fizzled at this point because she did marry a third time later on. Um, so it fizzled at some point. Yes. Unless she was the bigamist. Oh. <laughs> yes. For anyone who doesn't know what uh, what the bigamist is, is could co- possibly be about it's about a guy with two wives and the reasons he has two wives great so um because bigamy is yeah anyway hopefully people know bigamy hopefully is. people know but you know just in case so <coughs> after the filmmakers died out she moved on to tv and she directed a fuck ton of tv she directed until 1966 and she was best known for directing westerns and thrillers which is like so cool and she was the person that you hired if you wanted a western but especially if you wanted a western uh, like that had female characters and if you wanted those female characters to be like particularly hard-hitting to be complex and not just cardboard cutouts Mm -hmm. of characters yeah yep you called ida and so she had a lot of different actors who knew that and would tell the studios oh i see that you know we're doing we're doing a Western show, you should go talk to Ida Lupino. Whoa. Um, so after directing for TV for years and years, she directed one more film in 1966 called The Trouble with Angels, which was, strangely enough, a comedy about two prank-prone girls at a Catholic boarding school. That's not what I expected. I know. Very <laughs> strange. Um, it's It's considered pretty fluffy the context is lighter but the final conversion repeats lupino's adage that our perceived prisons are often only within ourselves which i liked that 
uh, yeah. that little thing because like that was a, a theme of outrage and it was a theme of um, not wanted and you know kind of some of her other films so the trouble with angels was a box office success it spawned a sequel because <laughs> it was fluffy because it was fluffy probably um she it spawned a sequel it spawned a sequel which she did not direct um and she last directed in 1968 she had a little bit of a a resurgence of her acting career uh-huh. in the 70s uh-huh. um but then i think she passed away in 95 i believe oh wow so yeah and i thought i wanted to end with a quote from her that i really liked which is, I am quite satisfied to confine myself to directing, story conferences, and some writing. One cannot do too many things too well. That's good advice. I know. So that's... That was fucking rad. That's Ida Lupino. I love her. I know. I want to watch all her shit. I know. And I will... I mean, I. the thing about The Bigamist that I thought was really interesting, and it kind of ties into some of what, you know, modern feminists say about her is that the themes of the movie definitely are still like like the guy who is married to two women and lying to them both he's still the hero at the end of it right and and she plays a character who he marries because he cheats on his wife with her Hmm. she didn't know about the wife but he cheats on his wife with her and she ends up having um she ends up getting pregnant and so he's like okay well i have to marry her but I don't want to divorce my wife. And okay. so he's kind of a shithead. Right. But he's the hero. But he's the hero. And, but and they, what did we talk about last week? We're all feminists in progress. We're all feminists in progress. And it's also important to remember that her husband at the time wrote a lot of these movies. Mm-hmm. Not her. And this is just, it was the 50s. But also, yeah, it, it's still an, god damn it, I keep hitting my thing. It's because it's. Um, but it's still interesting. Yeah. Like, we can tell interesting stories. And it's a lovely film. I mean, she did a great job as a director and an actor, obviously. But it's a, it is a well-made and well-produced film. Yeah. And that's what she was setting out to do. Yeah. And she, was, she wanted to talk about women in uncomfortable and, you know uncommon situations and this fit into that regardless of what her ultimate like message at the end is or or how she ends up portraying him like obviously if if we were making that movie now it would be very different yeah but it doesn't matter but no no so anyway that's that well that's awesome yeah and i like that you prefaced it with a quote by Martin Scorsese, who is widely believed to be one of the best filmmakers of our time. Yes. And was he was highly influenced by her. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons I did it is because he was one of the only people to talk about her first as a director hmm. and second as an actor. Most of these articles Which I found... Which makes sense because he's a director. Yeah. But most of these articles I found talked about her as a, as a glamorous actress. And, oh, isn't it shocking that, that she, she also, also was directed? a director? I yeah. mean... It's not shocking, or at least it shouldn't be. But she was the only woman in the Directors Guild for a long time. Apparently, Whoa. yeah. Apparently, Directors Guild meetings while she was uh, while she was in the Guild 
were started with um, something like a welcome gentleman and lady. <laughs> because she was. That's kind of amazing, though, that she forced them to kind of change their to be like, welcome, gentlemen. Oh, shit. Uh, also, and welcome, lady. <laughs> yeah. Singular. Yes. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> single, single lady who is here in this room. So, you know, what crazy shit. I know. She was doing it at a time when it really was frowned upon for women to be doing it. And I think that's badass. I agree. Thank you. Thanks for that. Yeah, man. Do you want some on this day? I do. Is it slow for you as it was for me last week? <laughs> yeah. December still hibernation month? Yeah. It's I, the day after Christmas. I think it's, um. yes, it's December 26th. So many of you might not even be listening to this today. However, I will say it is Boxing Day. Oh, that's true. So that's kind of cool, um, which traditionally it was the day when um, wealthier families would pack up their leftovers from Christmas and take them to local um, shelters and charities and share their leftovers with the homeless or oh, with nice the poor. So that's where the, the term Boxing Day comes from, if you did not know. Boxing your shit up. Boxing your shit up and taking it to people in need. Um, so, 1492. What, what do we know about 1492? Lots of raping and pillaging. <laughs> the first Spanish settlement, La Navidad, is uh, in the New World, is founded by Christopher Columbus. Clever. Because... He's real clever. It's the uh-huh. day after Christmas. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You fucking shithead. Um, I thought this one was interesting, and I didn't look f- any further into it because I'm not sure where this, like, I don't know who got their information about this. But since we covered her, in 1620, Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory's crimes and serial murders are uncovered. Oh. Quote. Uncovered. Right. Maybe it's the day that they like uh, ransacked her castle. Yeah, I kind of think that might be might be what it is. We'd have to re-listen to that episode. <laughs> I should remember. <laughs> you know what? We've done this for a year. We have a lot of women in our brains and a lot of dates and a lot of dates. Um, 1908, Jack Johnson TKOs uh, Tommy Burns in 14. I don't know what that means in 14 for heavyweight boxing title and becomes the first black heavyweight champion 14 rounds okay 14 rounds um 1921 france 10 year old helene jacqueline was recognized by the french army as a hero 10 year old 10 year old german soldiers shot her her father and brother but she would not reveal secret information about the underground french army to the enemy this is World War One. Yep. Whoa. Yeah. So in 1921, she was recognized by the French army. Whoa. Um, I thought this was funny. 1924, Judy Garland at two and a half makes her show business debut. Good job, Judy. Good job. Build as baby Francis. Um, Build as baby Francis. Uh-huh. That's like how fucking Madubala was baby Mumtaz. Yep. That was apparently a thing of the era. I think so. It must have been. Um, Baby blank. 
I think that... Are you a baby and also been in movies? We'll call you baby whatever your name is. <laughs> Make sure everyone knows that you are a baby. Um, I guess I was like attracted to some of the more Hollywood-esque ones today. Cool. Shocker. Uh, 1940, The Philadelphia Story, uh, based on the Broadway play of the same name and starring Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, is released. Well, all right. Yeah. I didn't know it was the day after Christmas. Uh Uh-huh. And then last one. This one is kind of sad, but it's relevant to me and you. Or at least, I mean, I was fascinated by this and also terrified by this. But in 1996, six-year-old John JonBenet Ramsey is found beaten and strangled in the basement of her family's home in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, JonBenet. Yeah, that was a downer to end on, I know. But there really wasn't anything good after that. And and that one was Well, what's funny is so I, I wasn't me. in Colorado at that oh, time. Oh, were you in Texas? Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. I was in Louisville, which is like, that's where I grew up. And that's like 10 minutes outside of Boulder. Yeah, it was so close. And I remember being terrified that someone else was going to come and kill me because I was like practically the same age yeah very scary but (sighs) wow yeah and it's still unsolved yeah probably her dad i don't know i mean yeah i guess when you tamper with enough evidence then um well then it's impossible to know and it's impossible to know so that's that december 26th december 26th boxing day box up your leftovers today if you have them and give them to someone else you know do that do that <laughs> do that thing Deanna Hannah what are you excited about <laughs> okay mine's pretty silly though um aren't they always I'm excited about Dirty John <laughs> Dirty John wait what's that it's a show oh. on Bravo based off the podcast that was an investigation on the true story of Dirty John Meehan. That sounds very exciting. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, the cast is fucking great because Connie Britton's in it and Eric Bana. Oh, yeah. And Juno Temple and Julia Garner. Yeah. 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 And so far, I've enjoyed it. How many episodes? Uh, three. Well, at the time of recording, three episodes have come out. But by the time it's okay. released, I'm pretty sure five will be out. All right. All right. Podcast is fucking great. I need to listen to that. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Um, but the show is fun, too. And yeah. I just, I love Juno Temple. And she's doing, both her and Julia Garner are doing this very obnoxious, but it's true to life, um, kind of uh, Orange County, California. Like, they're kind of just like, this is how they are talking <laughs> in it. Both of them talk like this. Oh, no. And it's like nasal and they have vocal fry and I'm just like, oh, my Lord. But oh. they're basing it off of real people who are from Orange County who come from money. So. But anyway. Oh, my gosh. It's a really fucking riveting story. And I am excited to see where it goes on the show. I mean, I know what happens, but I'm excited. I love it. It's nice. Hell yeah. I love new shows. New things to watch. Oh, speaking of new shows, it, Killing Eve is on Hulu now. Oh, I watched it all in a day. Don't tell me. I haven't watched it yet, and I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. 
because I was trying to watch it on BBC America and I watched the first two episodes on BBC America, but it was like one of those things where you had to log in with a cable account every time. And and it was my roommate who was using his parents' cable account and would (laughs) ask me to log in every time. And I didn't want to text him every time for him to log in to his parents' cable. Um, So it's amazing that it's on Hulu. Sandra Oh is a fucking amazing actress and i love jodie comer i've loved jodie comer since uh my mad fat diary which was also a really good show if you haven't seen it you Mm-mm, should i haven't it's really fucking good all right deal and professor quirrell's in it <gasps> professor quirrell except he's playing a, a therapist and he's actually a really nice guy in it. okay fine because he's an actor imagine what but anyway lots of good shows watch them hell yes yeah, everybody should watch killing eve we're rambling yeah we, we are. should sign okay up. happy new year and we Happy love holidays. you. We love you. Thank you for helping us uh, make our 2018 really great. Yeah. I mean, this is we started the podcast this year. Yeah. And it just continues to grow. And I'm really thankful for that. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Oh. Peace, peace out, witches. We love you. Now I'm verklempt. Now I'm verklempt. <laughs> what, cat? Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you for listening. (laughs) You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry, and more. Basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Mm -hmm. If you like our podcast, it would be really helpful if you could please like and subscribe, rate and review, share with your friends on social media, word of mouth, Mm -hmm. all of that. It's great. Yes. And you can find us on Twitter at GWBB Podcast. Instagram is the same. And we are on Facebook under Good Witches, Bad Bitches Podcast. And hey, guess what? If you want to hear all of our episodes, they are all up at our website, GWBBpodcast.com. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to share with us and that you want us to share on our podcast at some point, you can email us at GWBBpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, guys. You know what? If you like what you hear, maybe please consider a little bit of supporting us financially by visiting our tip jar. Um, The link is in the show notes. Every little bit helps. It just kind of makes it so that we can keep this going so that it has some longevity. So just think about it. See see how you feel about it. Or you can support this podcast directly by buying us a coffee on our (laughs) Ko-Fi. So that is ko-fi.com slash GWBB podcast. Um, Coffees start at $3 because that's generally the price of a fancy coffee and it just helps us keep the ship going. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is produced by Moon Bounce and powered by Pinecast. Boom, boom, boom. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening.